0: Thank you so much for giving. Thank you for singing and for being a part of our church service today. I hope you have a Bible. And if you do, one last time for this summer, Psalm 85 is going to be our text for today. I'm going to miss uh, searching through the Psalms and seeing which one the Lord would have us to look at. Maybe next summer we'll continue this, who knows, or maybe before then. Uh, summer Psalm just sounds, just sounds good, right? Uh, fall doesn't really roll off the tongue with Psalm or Autumn. Uh, don't know, though. We might be in Psalms again before next year, but I believe God has put one, uh, has maybe saved the best one for last. I would like for you also to bookmark Genesis 28. Genesis 28, we're going to see a name of, uh, of a very important biblical character mentioned in this psalm, and it's going to lead us into his story that I think is worth checking out today. So uh, bookmark Genesis 28. We'll turn over there in a little while. So we're going to wrap up this series we've been in for a month, uh, for the month of July, all about finding rest and refuge in God's Word. That's the goal of this. It's hot. It's summertime. People are running here and there. People get tired. We need to get some rest physically. Spiritually, we need rest as well, and we need refuge, and we find that refuge in God's Word. And, and the book of Psalms is all about being refreshed and renewed in our faith. And, and while we've circled the periphery of this topic, our last psalm is all about crying out to God for revival, for new life, to our to and for our souls. So let's read Psalm 85, 1 through 7 is going to be our focus this morning. Uh, if you've read this before, hopefully it's one you've already highlighted and underlined. If you haven't ever studied it before, there's going to be some good uh, good promises from God in this one. So, Verse 1 Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all of your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Speaking of being restored and revived in the most literal sense, if there's ever a time we need to be refreshed, it's in the dog days of summer like we have been in, right? Uh, it's dry and hot days like this past week uh, that will cause us to long for maybe cooler, breezier autumn days. But but if you were to ask our younger selves, and some of you love hot weather and, and you're ready for more of it, and, and good luck, good for you, right? August is, is still pretty hot. But uh, if you were to ask our younger selves, I'm sure... Um, We would say, uh, as kids, we would say uh, we would just want summer to last a little longer. It doesn't matter how hot it is and how miserable it is outside. As kids, we just love what summer means, and and, and as adults we do too to some extent. Uh, If you ask a kid how much longer do you want summer to last, they would just say a little bit more, (laughs) right? It's just no concept. It's just, hey, just a little bit longer would be be good enough. Uh, Growing up, um, this point particularly in the summer would always be kind of a bummer to me, um, a little bittersweet, uh, because the end of July, August on the horizon, and, um, yeah, there's still a few more weeks of smoldering and, and blistering hot weather, but August meant school was going to start soon, and and all the free time would be zapped away uh, in the blink uh, of an eye. And, and and you know we live at such a unique time in history, and I think it's good that we kind of back up from the earth a little bit and and we back away from the way we see how we we're, we're doing life, and and we kind of uh, appreciate just the time that we're living in. And and I know we often talk about how bad things are and how perilous times are, and, and there's truth to that. But I think we as people in today's time specifically, we've got a whole lot that we should be mindful of and, and be grateful for, and, and maybe today you can add a few things to that list of, of things to appreciate. We live at such a unique time because just a few hundred years ago, nobody would ever, and I mean, mean this, uh, just a few hundred, maybe even 150 years or, or, or less ago, nobody would ever look forward to weather like this. Nobody would ever look forward to seasons, to, to, to this season, especially in climates like ours. Uh, it was the bane of everyone, everyone's existence. We love this time of year because summertime lends itself to so much to do. We have opportunities baked into our infrastructure that allows us and, and, and you know, encourages us to enjoy and affords us to enjoy them. But the way the world used to work, Not that long ago, in the grand scheme of things, with the systems in place, the limitations the world was functioning underneath for thousands of years, uh, there just just wasn't time for fun and games, and, and there really wasn't much a concept for fun and games. Maybe for the very, very, very elite and top of society, Uh, as in the people ruling and the people who were the families that were in charge of the countries and, and, and powers that be. But even in their circles, life was still much more work than it was play. Um, there, was, there was sources of entertainments for the very wealthy of society, you know, the theater and competitions. But for the average citizen, I mean, just think about this. Up until maybe 100, 150 years ago, for the average citizen, uh, for people like us, for most people, there wasn't even a category for summer vacations, for days off, for outdoor recreation. Again, honestly, in the grand scheme of history, it's not that long ago. Less than 150 years ago, people didn't even have a concept for the things that are just normal to us. Makes you think, doesn't it? I don't think it's really shocking when we think about it, when you talk about it out loud, when you think about how the world used to work, how it functions today when you think about how much of an impact America has had on the world uh, and, and that's really the key differentiator um, it, it's really because of the revolutionary concepts and principles of America that we shared with the rest of the world so many of the systems that were put in place in our country and that were developed over time uh, and, and made us who we are today um, that's what has afforded us the, the modern privileges that we have uh, things that we complain about and I know we love to complain about things like tax and government regulation, all that stuff led to the implementation of workers' rights and government-mandated holidays and benefits and subsidized development that uh, made our country more than just a place to work and a place to sleep, but made it a place to have fun and and put things all around us that we can enjoy. Um, Really, post-Civil War America, and you can, y'all know I love history, and y'all can study this on your own time. There's plenty of documentaries and resources you can look into this, but really, post-Civil War America really introduced to the whole world brand new concepts things like recreation and vacation which we just think that's normal everybody knows what that is but go back before the civil war go back in that period of time and way and beyond beyond that in history nobody knew what this stuff was nobody had a concept for days of play or days off to the point that things that are just normal to us, and, and just consider this, things like ball fields and parks and beaches and mountain resorts and sailing and fishing and hiking and kayaking and, and golfing and just goofing off, things that are just normal to us, they didn't even exist not that long ago. And it wasn't they didn't exist. It's just they weren't accessible to the average person. Most of them weren't even things that the average person ever thought about. Not that they couldn't be done, but in terms of things that were possible, accessible, the average person just didn't even realize they were a category. Just a little research will show you that between 1880 and 1920, that's really the window that you need to look into. Between 1880 and 1920, this entire new economy was born. This economy of recreation and vacation. We actually exported that to the rest of the world. Things like the World's Fair that took uh, place across the country uh, led to large portions of cities being dedicated to things like parks and, and resorts and carnivals and all sorts of things that we enjoy. Country clubs and the likes. Uh, at the same time, it was during that, that, that period of time, that 40-year period, that the modern calendar began to be carved out. Summertime became a time when children were all from school and families were given time all from work to enjoy life. And again, it's, it may be hard to imagine, but compare how our world functions with what was the standard hundreds of years ago and, and before that. Can you imagine what those past generations of people would think if they were brought to our time? (laughs) They would think, wow, you don't realize how good you have it. And we often talk about how bad the 20th, 20th, 21st century world has become, and there's a lot of things wrong with it morally and all those other categories. But we sure do enjoy the luxuries and privileges, don't we? I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, juggling the differences that, you know, do do I want to get rid of all these modern privileges and luxuries and amenities to go back to a world that was before? I don't think many of us would do that, would we? Certainly, we live at a unique time in history. We get to enjoy a version of this life that hasn't always been the norm, and it's become the new normal, and maybe it won't always be. We don't know, but for our little period of time on this earth, it's been what we've I've been used to and what we get to enjoy. This brand of life that we get to live, we're so fortunate and privileged to know, it sent shockwaves around the world as it became the new normal, as it was becoming the new normal from the 19th century into the 20th century. And this led a writer and historian uh, in the 1930s, a guy named James Adams, to pen and popularize a phrase that you're all familiar with the American dream. The American Dream. James Adams wrote this as he was comparing American life and what it had become, uh, the the, the privilege that people had, the, the luxuries people were getting used to, the opportunities people had to not just get up and work and go to sleep, but the idea of, hey, days off and having fun and doing things and enjoying life and still getting paid for it and all the benefits that people as Americans were getting used to, things that we don't even blink an eye at, that we just think are always the normal, right? We just think they've always been, but they weren't. They weren't. James Adams was was comparing life to what it was like in Europe, another very developed place at the time. But he wrote about how the things that Americans were experiencing and enjoying, only the top 1% of people in Europe were getting to enjoy. And, And he wrote this. The American dream is a dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every person with opportunity to to uh, according to each one's ability uh, achieve their dreams. It's been a dream of being able to grow up uh, to grow to fullest development as a person unhampered by barriers which had slowly been built in the older civilizations unrepressed by social orders of old. So James Adams in the 1930s is, is, is sitting, and this was during the Depression when things were kind of taking a step back here, but still he said, still he said, as Americans, one day people will look back and think they didn't realize how good they had it. And one day there will be generations born decades from now that, will have never, um, that could never imagine a world without the things that are normal for them. I think that's true, isn't it? He wasn't just writing about making money. He was writing about the things that Americans had come to enjoy, things that we've shared with the rest of the world. And now, nearly a hundred years later, the American dream is still going strong. Yes, there are some scratches on the armor, but for most of us, we enjoy a world far better than our predecessors did. We uh, have benefits and luxuries that seemed unthinkable, unimaginable, just a century ago. But let's be honest, because we're all friends here. All that American dreaming hasn't necessarily made us a happier people, has it? All that American dreaming hasn't necessarily made us happier than previous generations, or just in general, has it? It's made us more comfortable. It's made, us, it's made life easier, and we would never want to go back. It's made life streamlined. It's filled our memory banks with highlight reels that we're super fond of. Ideally, and, and, if you, and as we've compared and contrasted, ideally, uh, we should be the most joyful, peaceful, pleasant people that's ever lived on this earth. But studies show, in our own honesty, would support these claims. They were just as strung out, stressed out, and burnt out as anybody that's ever lived. Maybe even more so, aren't we? Now, There's a lot of factors as to why this is true, but you'd think with all that the American dream has afforded us, we'd be on cloud nine all the time. We'd never have a day where it's bad. But that's just not the case, is it? Unfortunately, it's not the case, even with all the days off, all the self-care, all the extra cushion we have, even though everyone dreamed across thousands of years of this reality that we get to enjoy, the treasure we've arrived at, as much as it sparkles and glitters, sometimes we have to wonder, is it really all gold? This isn't to say that we don't enjoy the things that we do. Of course we do, but it just doesn't seem to be enough for us, does it? Perhaps it only exposes the greater weaknesses that we have, that we can't ever arrive at the full satisfaction that we, uh, that we get taste of here and there in this and that. Or you could say that having all this within our grasp only teases us with what it really can't ever truly give us. We think it's just around the corner. How couldn't it be? Look at what we get to enjoy that nobody even thought about 150 years ago, but it just isn't And we we say, well, there's a lot of reasons, Justin, if things would just work out with these people and that people and that group, I mean, there's a lot of factors that we're still worried about, aren't we? I mean, something's not clicking, and it should be all perfect, as it seems on paper, but it just isn't. The long, winding introduction (laughs) has brought us to the mind of a worship band that served the nation of Israel under King David. This band was called the Sons of Korah, which in your Bibles, in Psalm 85, uh, most, most of your Bibles at the top of that psalm, it says this is a psalm of the Sons of Korah. The Sons of Korah was a, a band that was named in honor of a music, musician of Moses' day. Uh, this band, the Sons of Korah, was a mantra that was passed along to the different worship bands that served the nation of Israel through David's generation on forward. Uh, the, the Sons of Korah were tasked by David to write anthems and praise and worship songs for the nation to sing. Many of these songs, particularly the anthems, would lean heavily on Israel's history to seek to aspire, inspire Israel's future by the blessings from its past. Something that stands out about these anthems, though, is they never really speak of the conditions of the nation of Israel at that present time. And you probably know this, but maybe you don't. Under King David, under his son Solomon, after that, um, Israel was at peak prosperity. Israel was uh, the world that was 3,000 years ago, there was no better life than what Israel had going on. It was a nation unlike any other, a nation under God, governed by law, with the good of its people on its mind, a preview of the model that our founding fathers would adopt for our country. Israel was very blessed, very secure, very prosperous. However, When you read these psalms, uh, these anthems, you never hear about those material blessings because Israel's greatest treasure wasn't their land of milk and honey, as great as it was, it was its God in his covenant with them. And that's what these songs were meant to keep front and center of the people's minds. These anthems were all about reminding Israel to keep its mind and keep its heart and keep its focus on the Lord. Psalm 85 is a heartfelt cry for revival. Key verse number six, will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? Rejoice in you. Not other stuff, that's good, but hey, you, God, are the real source of our joy. You are the one that we live for. So there seemed to be a disconnect in this generation of People rejoicing in God, finding their true joy and peace in God. So the people, the sons of Korah, felt like there was a need for revival in the land. But if you were to ask the people that lived 3,000 years ago in the nation of Israel, they would have thought, revival? What do we need that for? We're doing just fine. Nobody's ever known life like we've known it. It's never been better for us here in the nation of Israel, the people of God there's often this disconnect between what the Bible says we need and what we think we need. What we feel like we need and what God says we need actually need. This is the quintessential example in the Bible. The people of David and Solomon's days didn't think too much about God, and they didn't think about what he had done for their previous generation. They were too busy enjoying all that they had at their fingertips, and they certainly didn't feel like they needed revival. They didn't think that God was displeased with how they were living their lives. How could he be? They were having a good time. They were just living the dream. Naturally, as we've discussed plenty before, when we get too comfortable, we can become complacent and forgetful, and it's when we're complacent and forgetful that we forget and drift from the Lord. We don't do this out of malice or ill intent. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to forget God today, but we do this because we're easily distracted. I think the word that summarizes the generation of Psalm 85 and our generation is preoccupied. We don't make a premeditative decision to turn from God. We just become preoccupied with things that take us away from him. Who among us? Who among us would confess that this is true about us, about you? That we are a preoccupied people and for good reasons, mind you. I mean, again, talking about the the, the privileges we have as a people, what our generation knows that previous generations didn't know. I mean, would you blame us for being preoccupied? Would you blame us for having our minds on all the things that we get to do because 150 years ago or before, nobody even thought about doing the things that we get to do? I mean, hey, it's summertime. It's, It's the time of preoccupation. We've talked for several weeks about how the Psalms are good to get our minds back thinking on the things of God. They invite us to come to God with whatever is on our minds. They show us the way back to God, but part of that revelation is showing us that we have indeed drifted from God. You know why a lot of people don't think they need to get back to God? Because they've never stopped and realized they've drifted away from God. We'll never make our way back to God until we realize and admit that we've lost our way from him. The people of Israel, as, as the sons of Korah are leading them in this song, they're thinking, why do we need revival? Do you see how blessed we are? Do you see how much we've got? Do you see what all we get to do every day? I mean, we don't need revival. What are you talking about? on the surface, you'd never imagine the people of David's kingdom or Solomon's reign have drifted from God. But sometimes, isn't it true, sometimes it's when we appear the most successful and prosperous that we may yet have an outstanding spiritual need. Why do you think that God eventually brought Israel to a much more dire place a few generations when when this psalm was written? Because they didn't realize where they were headed and needed a firm or a more firm reminder. Why do you think that no country, just just think about this, why do you think that no country on the planet, no kingdom on the planet, most of them don't last as long as we've lasted, but, 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 but still, why do you think, especially our own country, why do you think we never see more than a decade of uninterrupted prosperity? You can blame the left or the right or the politicians or the economy or the war or the election, but you know who's in charge of all this? So why do you think we never see more than a decade of uninterrupted, prosperous, uh, you know, increase in everything in every category? Because God does what he does and his goal is that we might be restored to him and be revived by him and that we might understand our spiritual condition is much more important than any other condition that we give our attention to and that we might give attention to our souls that we might be preoccupied no longer. Because we are a preoccupied people for good reason. But is that an excuse? I think if you were to give Psalm 85 a title, it should be Israel's dream or the Israeli dream. Because this psalm shows us what we should have as our goals, what should be our desire of our hearts, but it isn't always, is it? Now, you'll notice, though, Israel isn't referred to in this psalm, but another name is Jacob. Jacob. Did you know that before Israel was a nation, it was a man? A man given the name to symbolize the birth of a nation that would come from his children. But that man, before he was called Israel, he was called Jacob. Now, we know Jacob. He's Abraham's grandson. He's Isaac's son. And it's with him the promise of a nation created by God, chosen by God, really got rolling. Jacob, you'll remember, was a twin, his brother Esau. And this caused a little bit of drama when he was born. Because as you follow the story, God is blessing Abraham, God is going to bless Isaac, but now there's two of them. Who's going to get the blessing? Who's going to be the the one that carries the baton forward? Would it be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau? Or would it be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob? Well, obviously we know that Jacob got the blessing. Jacob was chosen. We also know the family was a little bit torn uh, about what was actually going to happen. And there was this inner competition, brother versus brother, parent versus parent even. Every child of those days dreamed of carrying the lineage forward, but there was a whole lot more on the line in this family. And Jacob had a dream. Jacob dreamed with wonder and possibility. Uh, and, and because of how ceremonial things were back in those days, Jacob needed two things the family birthright and his father's blessing. The birthright was this unspoken token of favor that families would pass along from one child to another or from parent to child. Uh, But it was the Father's blessing that really set things in motion. And that's how it worked in all nations back in those days, even among secular families. But when it came to God and his chosen people, God didn't really care about this stuff. God blessed who he blessed. God was going to do what God was going to do. It didn't really matter about the ceremony or the ribbon-cutting to God. However, Abraham's family was still very superstitious, and they were still very much immersed in a world that operated by these metrics and by these rules. So the story goes that Jacob and his mom are really concerned about him being the, the, the chosen one. He, meanwhile, Isaac is, is favoring Esau, but, uh, uh, but Rebekah favors uh, Jacob. And the story goes that Jacob cons Esau into selling him his birthright. Because Esau was born a minute earlier. So they were twins, but Esau had the, had the birthright. So Jacob take, you know, takes advantage of Esau's hunger one day, says, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this pot of stew I made if you'll give me your birthright. So they, they literally, not literally, but they go down to the lawyer's office and they get it notarized and they get it all in paperwork. Esau says, hey, I'm no longer the oldest. Jacob is, Jacob's gonna have the blessing. Jacob's gonna have the birthright. But they still needed the father to actually make this official in a family ceremony but but Isaac was getting old and he was his vision was getting dim so with the help from his mom Jacob literally pulls the wool over his dad's eyes by disguising himself as Esau and Jacob gets the father's blessing instead of Esau Translation, Jacob's dream of being the chosen and favored son uh, was coming true and it, as being the main character in God's redemption story, being the one that accelerated the plan for redemption for the whole world. Jacob was living the dream and he was on cruise control towards realizing all of his dreams and all of his desires or so he thought. So picture this. Jacob has basically been told by his father, you're going to inherit the blessing. You're going to uh, be the one that God is going to do all his activity through on the earth. And basically, Jacob has this complex, well, I guess God is obligated to bless me. God is basically forced to do for me and take care of me. and, And hey, that's how this works, right? A lot of people think that's how it works, but that's not how it works. Remember one of the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness from the devil... Uh, which was basically don't worry about consulting with God about doing what he says or doing what's right. Just back him in a corner and quote this verse over here and God's gonna, obli- by obligation, gonna take care of you. So he says, hey, Jesus, throw yourself off this, 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 this high place and the angels will take care of you because that's just what the Bible says. And, and that's Satan trying to tempt all of us into manipulating God's word and forcing God to do what we think God has to do. But, but, but that's not how it works. Jacob thought Well, God's got to bless me. I've got my father's blessing. I've got the birthright. I mean, hey, I'm the the guy. There's no way this doesn't work out for me. So Jacob leaves his father's house. He's going to go make a name for himself. He's high-stepping. He's paving his way. He's going to go and be somebody great. Is he expecting God to be at his beck and call? But all the while... We never read that Jacob prayed to God. We never read that Jacob consulted with God. Jacob never talked with God. As far as we know, he's just riding the waves of other people's words. So God decides, maybe I actually need to go and talk to this kid and tell him how it works. Clearly, God had been watching from afar, seeing how Jacob was taking matters into his own hands, and God was planning on blessing him the whole time. He was just giving Jacob time to figure it out because God is gracious like that. Well, that wasn't working, so God says, I guess (laughs) it's now or never with this kid. So God is going to come to Jacob in an actual dream and essentially chart the course for him going forward. So if you have a bookmark in Genesis 28, I want to read this passage to you. I want you to follow along with me in that passage. This is so rich and it's so so powerful. Jacob is on his road to 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 find a wife. He's gonna go make a name for himself. He hasn't prayed a prayer. He hasn't thought about God. He doesn't even think that, that, that he doesn't think he has to, because he thinks God is on his side. Why wouldn't God take care of him? He's got the blessing. He's got the birthright. So Jacob is just marching to the beat of his own drum. And God says, I guess I kinda need to kinda need to talk to him. So 28 verse 10. It says, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there all night before the sun had set. He took one of the stones on that place of that place and put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and the top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So again, that's an amazing promise from God. But it's how Jacob reacts that lets us know that he was completely clueless to God before this ever happened. And how he acts after this proves that he's still clueless, but we'll get to that. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, this is so rich, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Now, nothing that God says to Jacob is really all that new and it clearly, obviously, it isn't very harsh. It's, it's awesome. It's incre- incredible. It's encouraging. But the point of this is that Jacob has a crossroads in front of him and God is inviting Jacob to keep his mind less preoccupied with all the other things that he has been and could be so that he can be aware of God's incredible will for his life and God's hand on his life. But do you know why God came to Jacob in a dream? Now, we've read before in Genesis, God just shows up. Showed up to Abraham, showed up to Isaac, shows up to Noah, shows up to Adam and Eve. We know God does not have to come to people in dreams. Why did God come to Jacob in a dream? Because Jacob was asleep to God. So maybe if he comes to him in a dream, he'll wake up with God on his mind. I I think I think that's entirely the reason. Jacob had zero conscience toward God before this moment. He is completely self-absorbed. It's me, 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 my birthright, my blessing. What can I do and what can God do for me? He had zero concept for a relationship with God. He was asleep to God. So God shows up in his sleep, hoping that he'd wake up with God on his mind. Jacob sees that God is constantly trying to get his attention and that every aspect of his life is connected to heaven as he sees the angels coming up and down this ladder that's propped up against the sky. He admits, this is so crucial, that he was completely unaware of God's activity. He says in verse 16... God was here and I didn't even know it. I've not even paid attention to what God was trying to do in my life. I've took it into my hands. I had to steal my brother's blessing. I had to steal his birthright. It was up to me. It's on me. When it really wasn't, God was going to do this anyway. He burned a bridge with his family for nothing. Now, I would love to tell you that Jacob kept this front and center and never wavered from his walk with God, but that's not the truth. Hardly at all. Jacob leaves that place, and for the next 20 years of his life, he never prays, he never talks to God, he gets himself into more trouble, he gets roped in to all sorts of affairs in in Haran, he ends up with two wives and two mistresses, we don't even know what to call them, he has all this family drama, all these problems, but he's very rich, that's all that matters, right? He's very blessed, he's got a big, big family, 20 years later, God gets his attention again. And flip over to Genesis 35, if you will. 20 years later, God gets his attention again and says, Jacob, you didn't remember a single thing I told you those years ago, did you? You know why I didn't remember? Because Jacob spent those 20 years totally preoccupied, prospering in every area except the one that mattered. Hey, God God says, Jacob, remember Remember me? You know where you last talked to me at? At Bethel, the rock on the side of the road that you saw me and you heard me. And that's where I've been waiting on you because you never left there with me. You left me there. Of course, he could have went with him. He said, I'll go with you wherever you go. But Jacob, Jacob didn't regard God's plan for his life. He was preoccupied by all the wrong things. So God gets Jacob's attention in thirty-five, God said to Jacob, Arise and go up or go back to Bethel and dwell there, as in stay there until you get this right. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of your Esau, your brother. So God says, Jacob, it's been twenty-one years. I've been waiting here. And I, again, there's a whole sermon in there about the patience of God, the graciousness of God, the kindness of God, and that's true, and that should not be overlooked. But can you imagine? For 20 years, Jacob was off living his life, and on paper, Jacob was living the dream. He had a favorite wife and a least favorite wife. and a <laughs> He had all kinds of kids. It was a big mess, but Jacob, on paper, he had all these livestock and all this money. He was very wealthy, very successful, very famous, because on Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods. Oh, by the way, he was worshiping other gods because that's what happens when we preoccupy our mind with things not from God. We end up worshiping things. And now these other gods, they were not gods that were rivaling the Lord. They were just things that stood for all the worldly endeavors he was involved in. We might not call them idols anymore. We just call them obligations. Put away your foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourself. Change your garments. Let us go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of distress, has been with me in the way which I have gone. So Jacob put away all the foreign gods which were in his hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and that was a symbol of the culture they were in, the slavery they were under, the, the servitude they were under. Jacob hid them under this tree that was by them at Shechem. They journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities as uh, that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob, so God is literally putting this bubble around Jacob because he wants Jacob to get back to him. So Jacob come to Luz, uh, which is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan, he and all the people that were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because that, that there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother, now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alkin Balkuth, and, and that's just historical records to let you know this is a real place. Then God appeared to Jacob again and said, uh, when he had came to around and blessed him, and here's the big uh, t- uh, event-altering, life-altering moment. God says to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body or from your family. So God, Jacob went to Bethel and prayed for revival. And God responded, with giving him a new name, a spiritual name. And that's why Jacob's story was so inspirational to Israel. In a sense, Jacob's story was Israel's story in a microcosm. Literally, he was Israel, and Israel as a nation would kind of do what Jacob did through the years. Jacob was destined to do great things, by God to do great things and experience so much, yet he presumed or took for granted the kindness of God. He became preoccupied with all the world's cares. You know, it's like the parable that Jesus told of the seeds and the sower and the seeds. And remember, in that parable, there's some seed that falls among the thorns, Matthew 13. And the thorns grow up and it choked him. And and Jesus explains it, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke out the world. The seed is a person so preoccupied by good things that they find their faith choked out, falls away. This is why we need revival. This is why every one of us need to rely on God's saving power because on our own, we will fall away, we will fade away. And in him is restoration, it is forgiveness, it is deliverance, and we need to come back to Bethel today. To God's dwelling place. This house is a symbol of that dwelling place, but it is a point in our life where we fall on our knees and we say to the Lord God, we have been preoccupied, we have been otherwise focused, our hearts have been wrongly aligned, we are coming back to Bethel. We are coming with the intention of being made different, new, and better people. Something we read about in Genesis 35, Jacob took his whole family with him. The whole entourage that was with him. Let me just say this. If we are going to get right with God, we're going to have to make sure our efforts include bringing as many people back to him with us as possible. If we surround ourselves with people that are going in the opposite direction of us spiritually, they'll just sweep us away. If we tune into negativity and tune into things that are pulling us away, preoccupied, uh, distracting things of this world, if we focus on those things and set our affection on those things, we will go with them. They won't go with us. That's not how it works. Proverbs 13 says, If you walk with the wise, you will become wise. If you but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I get it. You can't make people come to God with you. You can't make your family come to God with you. But you, we have to stand our ground and let people know we have made our minds up. Why did Jacob drift away time and time again? Because Jacob was a follower of the world. He wasn't a a follower of God and a leader in the world saying, Until, until... Genesis 35, where he says, I've wasted 20 years of my life. Today, I'm making a decision. I'm going back to Bethel, and I'm not going to leave there until I get what God has for me. And at that altar, God changed his name. God made him a new person. Do you hear that? God gave him what was available to him all that time. But Jacob wouldn't receive it. Jacob couldn't receive it. Jacob knew the things of God. He could quote the blessings of God. He could tell you about God. For 20 years, he was preoccupied with everything but God. That's a lot of us, isn't it? We've got to be like Joshua when he led the nation of Israel to the promised land, he says, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me, and as for my house, we will serve the Lord. And we as people have to be that strong, bold proclamation, uh, make that bold proclamation of faith that we are not going to be preoccupied no longer. And if we don't make that decision and make that, take that stance, we will be. We will become. Like the world, all throughout the Old Testament, we see this emphasis on the people of God coming together as a whole and praying for revival. We know famously Solomon received from God this promise. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So we know the promise, don't we? But the way to the promise and the pathway from, from where we are and where we want to be is humbling ourselves before God and praying for him to revive us and admitting to him that we need revival. Revival. Because on the surface, we may not think we need it. We may be so distracted we don't realize we need it. We might be chipping away at something, thinking we're going to get what we need from it, and we know all along it's not how it works. 2 Chronicles 20, the nation of Israel once again comes to God, and I love this word from Jehoshaphat. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. When is the last time we got in front of God at an altar and said... Our eyes are on you. So often we come to God and we know what to do. We tell God, God, I need this and you better do this and you need to do this and all these things have to work out for this to go the way I want it to go, God. But I love Jehoshaphat's posture. God, I'm not here to offer you my opinion. I'm here to receive your direction. The New Testament, we find that we don't just come to God as families but we come to God as a spiritual family. The church Again, we can't make people respond with us, but we have to make that decision and send a light out with our own lives. The truth is, we're all too preoccupied, chasing the wrong dreams. But Israel's dream, Jacob's dream, literally should be the driving motive for our lives. We come to God as Jacob with our dreams and desires of this world, but we gather around this altar and we rise up as Israel, with spiritual dreams and desires. Don't you see this is a picture of what it means to be truly converted, truly saved, truly changed? We come to God as Jacob, but we leave his house as Israel. You see, Psalm 85 is the dream that we should have as believers. It's the dream that we ought to have as believers where we come to God and we pray to him, restore us, O God of our salvation. Verse 4, Verse 6, revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your mercy, O oh God. Unshackled by what preoccupies us, in the middle of his dream, it dawned on him. God, it dawned on Jacob. God has been here the whole time, and I didn't even know it. He's got greater plans for me. What am I doing wasting my life on other things? You know what's important about that story? Jacob wasn't in a temple. He wasn't in a church building. You know where Jacob was? at a certain place on the side of the road. That's just where he stopped. That became the house of God to his generation. It was originally just a place that he laid his head down on a rock. But that's the place he built the altar to God, and that's the altar he came back to 20 years later. That reminds you and me, right here, right now, is our certain place where we can admit to God we've been going in the wrong direction, we are back, and we want him to revive us again. Now, maybe you don't realize you need it, but just like Jacob, this should be our greatest sign that we absolutely do need it. And if you know you need it, if you know you need revival and this world can't give you what you're looking for, God promises if we seek him with our whole heart, he will raise us up a new person, a changed person. This is key, a spiritually minded and wired person. Spiritually. You know what we need is the presence of a spiritual God in our lives so that we aren't so fooled by this literal, physical, material world. So, I've written out a prayer for us. I'd like us all to repeat. If you want to seek God in a personal way, you can do business with him in your own words at this altar. But this is just a template for us to consider and help, hopefully, get our thoughts organized. I'll read it to you first, and then we can read it together. God, refocus our eyes on your face. Realign our hearts with your will. God, restore us by your grace. Revive us. Realize your dream in us. So, would you read that with me one line at a time? God, refocus our eyes on your face. Realign our hearts with your will. God, restore us by your grace. Revive us. Realize your dream in us. This psalm is all about refocusing, realigning, restoring, and being revived. We've seen what God can do. We know what God can do, but the first step we've got to take is to admit what we need to do. What we need God to do. This template hopefully will inspire all of us this morning to personally seek the Lord, refocus, realign. He will restore and he can revive us again. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your invitation you've given us. As the psalmist prayed, will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? God, would you stir our hearts this morning. If there's anybody in the house today that would just be honest and say, God, I've had my focus on the wrong things. I've had my heart aligned to the wrong things. God, would you restore me to your plans? Would you revive me and realize your dreams within me? This world offers us a lot of dreams, and hey, that's great. Those things are from you ultimately, but there's a greater dream that we should set our hearts and minds to. That is the dream of the people of God. The dream of being a spiritual people that lives our lives for the glory of God. To honor him with all that we have and all that we are. No longer preoccupied. Focused on you. So that we might live for you with all that we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.